verses 23 through 33 in Matthew 22. Jesus continues to, to teach and continues to address the religious leaders during this, during this Passion Week. And this is where we pick up the story. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and so the, also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning, Lord, that that you would alter our mindset. That when you would give us eternal minds to see an eternal perspective, Lord, that you may work in our hearts, that our minds shift, change. That we may focus on God and the kingdom of God versus this world. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your providence, your care for us. Lord, may you speak to our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's fair to say and and a safe, safe assumption to say that most of us, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, are focused on this world and the things of this world. Because we live in this world. We're focused on paying the light bill. We're focused on getting the kids to school. We're focused on making sure there's dinner on the table. We're focused on making sure that that the house is clean. We are are consumed with the things of this world. And oftentimes, oftentimes the things of this world eclipse our minds so much so that, that the eternal perspective and the eternal mindset becomes so far off that that it becomes it becomes a pipe dream that it becomes something that that is is less real than this world when in reality when in reality the scripture teaches us that that world the kingdom of god is more real than this world we understand that this world is fleeting and that that this world is passing away yet the kingdom of god will last forever and so in a very real way The kingdom of God, the eternal world, is a world that is more real than this world. Yet in our minds, 
we are consumed with this world. It's my prayer today that when we leave, that we will leave with an eternal mindset. Do we realize that God uses providential circumstances? God uses His sovereignty. God uses difficulty, hardships to alter our thought process. God uses things like death, illness, financial hardships, natural disasters to alter our mindset. Whether directly or indirectly, God is sovereign and God is in control of all things. And God uses hardships, difficulties, death, illness, floods, destruction to alter our mindset. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms. I want us to see David's statement in Psalm 119. It's interesting as you're turning there. By the time Hebrew children were of grade school age, five or six years old, they had memorized the entire uh, 119th Psalm. They did so. Uh, it, it, in, in the Hebrew, it reads like an acrostic. Every one of the little sections of Psalm 119 is the beginning, is the beginning of the Hebrew alphabet. And so they would, they would learn the, the, the Hebrew alphabet. They would learn Aleph and Bet and Gimel, and they would learn it. And as they would say Aleph, they would say the first three or four verses. And as they would say Bet, they would say the next three or four verses. And so by the time they were five or six years old, they knew the entire Psalm 119. And we're proud that our kids know their colors. <laughs> Psalm 119, verse 71. I want us to hear what these five and six-year-olds would have known. Verse 71. David said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Skip down to verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thou judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness... Thou hast afflicted me. Do you hear what David said? He said, he said, it was good for me that I encountered hardships. It was good for me that your afflictions, the afflictions that I endured was good. Why? Because it allowed me to learn thy statutes. It allowed me to have a shift in my thought process. Verse 75, he says, I know that in faithfulness you afflicted me. I know that in faithfulness, these hardships, these trials, this death, this illness, this financial loss, this, this natural disaster, I know that in faithfulness, you allowed that or caused that for my good in order that my thought process may be changed. I want to point out something that we've already learned in the book of Matthew. The word repent, metaneo in the Greek, means to change one's mind. And by changing one's mind, our behavior naturally changed. By, by changing our thought process, by changing the way we think, by changing the way that we believe, the actions will naturally follow. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 23, we're going to see how the Sadducees had a very earthly, a very temporal mindset and God would use circumstances, God would use providential circumstances, God would use His sovereignty to change their mindset. 
to cause them to repent, to change their mind. So, before we jump into the text, I want us to understand who were these Sadducees. Now, in the Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus' day, there was a ruling organization of the Jews, and it was called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, while, while they made up the largest portion of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees made up the most influential por- portion of the Sanhedrin because they had the most money. They had the most money, they had the most power, they had the most influence, they had, they had the closest relationship with Rome. There were, there were, they were the, the ruling elite. They were the people, they were the, the movers and shakers of ancient Israel. And I want us to understand that because they were the wealthiest of the because they were the wealthiest of their day, because in the Sanhedrin they had the most power, the most money, the most influence, I want us to understand that their beliefs suited their lifestyle. They tailored their beliefs around their lifestyle, and it's a sad it is a sad reality that many of us tailor our beliefs around our lifestyle rather than tailoring our lifestyle around the truth of God's Word. So what were the beliefs of the Sadducees? First of all, they were very temporal-minded and they were very because they were very externally wealthy. They believed in no afterlife at all. They believed in no resurrection. They believed that once you died, you were worm food. They believed that, that once you died, you were buried, and that was it. That, that, that you died, and therefore this world was all that there was. That this life was all that there was. And because of that, because of that, that lended itself to the way that they lived. They had a very, a very powerful and influential relationship with the Roman government. Because in doing so, they could, they could receive power, they could receive influence, they could receive benefits for themselves and this family in this life and in, and, and in their family. Conversely, they only believed in the Pentateuch. They only believed in the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They did not believe that, that any of the other books of the prophets, they did not believe that Isaiah or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Ecclesiastes. None of these books were were inspired by God. None of the books of poetry, the Psalms, the Proverbs, none of these books were inspired by God. And the the only authority they had, the only authority they believed in, was the Pentateuch. Because of this, they were very temporal, and they were very ex they were very externally wealthy and very temporal minded. And they ask Jesus this question. Let's go to the text. Understanding who the Sadducees were, understanding their belief set, understanding their their understanding of the Scripture, they ask Jesus this question. And I want us to understand the foolishness of this question. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 24. They said, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother's next of kin shall marry his wife 
and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us. First married and died and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Second, third, also even to the seventh. Verse 27. And last of all, the woman died, verse 28, in the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? Do you see the, the, the sarcasm and the, the, the ignorance here in their statement? You can almost, you can almost hear the, the, the biting remarks of, of, okay, Jesus, you're talking about this resurrection, so to speak. Moses said this. So in this resurrection, whose husband Whose wife will she be? You can, you can see the biting sarcasm of the Sadducees. Many of us have had conversations with, with those people who claim to be wise, who claim to be learned, who claim to be well-read, and they will pose questions such as, if your God is so big and so powerful, He can do anything. Can He make a rock so big that He can't lift it? And you look at him and you say, you're an idiot. That's a stupid question. You can see Jesus responding in his, in his mind saying, seriously? You don't even believe in the resurrection and you're asking me questions about the resurrection. You don't even believe that, that there is an afterlife and yet you're asking me to, to give you this, this circumstance that will never ever happen in a million years, yet, yet you are expecting me to, to play this song and dance? You're not asking me a legitimate question. There is, there is foolishness in this question. And the fool... The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Sadducees do not have an intellectual problem with Jesus, nor the teachings of Jesus. They have a volitional problem with the teachings of Jesus. They don't have a cognitive problem understanding what Jesus is teaching. They don't want to believe what Jesus is teaching because if they believe what Jesus is teaching, then it changes their lifestyle. And we don't want our lifestyle to change. If we, if we believe in everything that this word says, then naturally it is going to indicate our lives must change. There is a God who is in heaven and he calls us, he calls us to live differently than we are. And we want our beliefs to suit our lifestyle rather than our lifestyle to suit our beliefs. They ask a foolish question. Interestingly enough, the Sadducees knew the law of God, but they did not know the God of the law. The scripture tells us that all of the scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, rebuke, so that the man of God may be perfect, lacking nothing. The law of God, the, the scripture, reveals the character of God. It reveals all of who he is. That's why in Paul's 
farewell address to the church at Ephesus, notice what he says. Go with me if you will. Go to Acts chapter 20. I want you to see that that this is not something that I'm making up, but that Paul actually said it, actually wrote it. Luke actually wrote it. Paul said it. Acts chapter 20. Start reading in verse 21. No, let's skip down to verse 24. He says, But I do not consider my life on any account dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God, will see me no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is demonstrated in the whole of Scripture. God is not seen in... God is not revealed completely in a portion of the text. But as we see the whole counsel of God, as we see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down through the prophets, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the book of Acts and the epistles and the book of Revelation, we see the God of Israel. We see the God of heaven revealed to us. And to look at the Pentateuch alone, or to look at the prophets alone, or to look at the Gospels alone, or to look at the epistles alone, without the whole counsel of God, gives you an incomplete understanding of who God is. God is seen in in the whole of Scripture. And to look at only a portion of Scripture gives you an incomplete understanding of who God is. And the Sadducees saw only an incomplete revelation of who God was. They saw God only through the writings of Moses. They did not see God through the revelation of the prophets. They did not see God through the revelation of poetry. And they certainly did not see God through the revelation of Jesus. It's interestingly enough, it's interesting enough that in John chapter 1, the scripture tells us that God revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is referred to in John chapter 1 as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. All of Scripture is a revelation of, of who God is. We must be careful. We must be careful to make we must be careful to not make definitive judgment based upon our limited understanding. Hear what I'm saying, church. We go to a Bible study. We sit through a sermon. We think we've understand understood one piece of the text. And so we make definitive statements and definitive judgments and and have definitive convictions based upon a limited understanding of a limited piece of the Scripture. And we say, this is what God is. This is God's revelation. Be careful, church, to make definitive judgments based upon a limited understanding of a limited amount of Scripture. That's That's what the Sadducees had done. They had taken the law of Moses... 
And they had said, because this is what the law of Moses said, and because this is our understanding of the law of Moses, then this is what God is. This is the, the, the truth based upon my understanding. All of Scripture reveals who God is. Jesus is called the Word. And Jesus is the full revelation of God as demonstrated through the narrative of the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the poetry, through the Gospels, through the revelation. Jesus is the revelation of God. So, let's go back to the text. Matthew chapter 23. The the Sadducees asked Jesus this foolish question. Whose wife is this woman in the resurrection? And it's interesting that Jesus does not answer their question. Do you notice that? Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, the first guy. Oh, well, the the last guy. No, Jesus said, you guys don't even understand the question that you're asking. You have... You are looking for the answers to a heavenly issue with an earthly mindset. And I believe that more often than not, that is our problem in this world. We see the flood that devastates our entire community and that devastates our entire neighborhoods and, 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 and the war. And we ask ourselves, how can we solve this earthly problem? How can we solve the, the, the problem that is, that, that is surrounding us? Understanding that the problem is not that these homes are flooded. The problem is not that, that, that these people's possession, that our possessions are destroyed. The problem is that we have loved this world more than the God of this world. The problem is that there is a hopelessness because they have lost everything that, that this world has to offer. And the solution is a heavenly solution, but we are trying to give earthly answers to a heavenly problem. The Sadducees approached a heavenly issue in the resurrection, in the afterlife, which they don't believe in, in the afterlife, in the, hev- in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They approached a heavenly issue with an earthly mindset. Church, let us approach... Heavenly issues with a heavenly mindset. I want us to understand Jesus' response blew their minds. Look at verse 30. Verse 29. You are mistaken in not understanding the Scripture or the power of God. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't take them to the prophets. He doesn't take them to poetry. He doesn't take them to the narratives. He takes them back to the Pentateuch. He says, you know the Pentateuch, you know the law of God. Let's see if you know the law of God. You are mistaken and you are not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You're looking for heavenly issues with an earthly perspective. Verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, You haven't read that which was spoken to you by God. Now, had they read this text? Certainly. Did they know this text? Certainly. Verse 32, he says, he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And you and I look at that and you say, okay, 
What does that have to do with marriage? What does that have? Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he does. See, in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew language, it wasn't only verbs that had tense. In, in English, we have our verbs have past tense, present tense, future tense. I, I am running. I will run. I ran. Our verbs have tense. Our nouns don't. I, Daniel, the cow. It, it, it is what it is. But in the Hebrew language, not only do the verbs have a tense of past, present, or future, but the nouns must agree with their verbs, not only in number and in gender like in English, but also in verb tense. So whenever God said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 to Moses, as he appears to Moses in the burning bush, he appears to Moses and he said, Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am, I am a present God, the God of Abraham who had already died. And Abraham is in the same tense. Isaac, who had already died, is in present tense. Jacob, who had already died, is in present tense. God is in present tense. God is saying to Moses, he's saying, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though they die, yet they shall live. John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and all those who believe in me will live even when they die. There is a reality, there is a reality in the resurrection, there is a reality in the afterlife, and whether the Sadducees believed it or not, it does not change the truth. And so when Jesus made this statement that Abraham is, Isaac is, Jacob is, and I am their God, He forced the Sadducees to change their mind, to repent, to metaneo. They could no longer think the same way about the afterlife. And for that reason, they went to the Pharisees. They went to the high priest. They went to the Roman officials. And they said, okay, we got to do something about this guy. We've got to do something about this Jesus. Because He is no longer allowing us to live the way that we want to live. He is forcing us to change the way we think. And we don't like that. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that when God changes our perspective, it's uncomfortable? When God changes, when God rocks our world and changes the way that we think and naturally causes us to change the way that we act, the way that we behave, that it's uncomfortable, that we don't like doing that. We're used to doing things the way that we've always done things. It's comfortable. It's easy. I know this. But whenever God says no and He changes, He causes us to repent He causes us to change the way we think and naturally change the way we behave. That we don't like that. That's uncomfortable. In the circumstances God has placed us in, 
Are you viewing your circumstance with an earthly perspective or with a heavenly perspective? It's interesting for many of us who enjoy the marriages that God has blessed us with, the lives that God has blessed us with, we read this passage and there's somewhat of an element of grief there. Is there not? We read where it says, in heaven, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. And we think, well, 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 wait, wait a second. I like my wife. I like my husband. You know, that, that, that I enjoy this relationship. I don't want there not to be a marriage. I don't want there not to be this, this, this closeness and this oneness that you have blessed us with. But I want us to understand, church, that everything on this earth is a shadow. It is, it is a glimpse of the glory that is to come in the resurrection. And I want us to understand that even good relationships and even good marriages and even, even our close relationships that are godly relationships are tainted with sin. And so, what Christ is telling us in this passage is that your relationship with your spouse, while it is a demonstration of the gospel, while it is a shadow of the glory of God, on this side of the resurrection, on that side of the resurrection, there will be no sin. And the selfishness that plagues your relationship will be done away with. The self-centeredness in your relationship will be done away with. The fleshly aspects of your relationship will be done away with. The scripture tells us that in glory that there is no sorrow. That there are no more tears. That God wipes away all of our tears. So that tells me that there will be a relationship that I have with my spouse. That I have with my loved ones. But it will not be tainted with sin. And in glory, the greatest relationship that I have will not be the one that I share with my wife but the one that I share with my Savior. The resurrection, the afterlife, where God wipes away every sorrow, every tear, is perfect and without sin. I want us to understand this, church. In this statement, Jesus tells us that God is not destroying His creation, but that He is redeeming His creation. I want us to understand that. That the power of the gospel is not in the destruction of creation, but in the redemption of creation. The scripture tells us that God makes all things new. That He is creating a new heaven and a new earth. That He is redeeming this world. And He wants to start the redemption of this world with you. He wants to start the redemption of His creation with your heart, with your soul. He wants to start right here, right now, redeeming that which was lost. Maybe this morning you came in to church this morning with an earthly mindset. You came in to worship this morning 
seeing the circumstances, the circumstances, the providential situation that God has placed you in through an earthly lens. And God has caused, through His Holy Spirit, you to look at things through an eternal lens. To change the way you think and line it up with the way God's Word reveals to us in His Scripture. Maybe God is revealing to you this morning that you are indeed a sinner who needs to repent, to turn from your sin, and trust in what Jesus has done for eternal life. God is not destroying His creation, but redeeming it, and He desires to start with you. Let's pray. God, may this morning, may you continue your work of redemption in our hearts. May you change the way we think. May you change the way we act. God, may you speak to our hearts this morning. May we confess our earthly mindsets. Lord, may we allow you to replace our earthly mindset with a heavenly mindset. May we see your glory. May we be able to say with David, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. May we say that, that your judgments are faithful. God, may we see this flood as a demonstration of your grace that you no longer allow us to remain as we are. But it is your desire to redeem us. Or may we see sickness, death as part of your goodness, part of your grace. Or if there's someone here who needs to give their life to Jesus that He and He alone may redeem them. Or may today be the day of salvation. There's someone here, Lord, who You've called to be a part of of this local body. Or may today be the day that they make that commitment to your local church. God, may you move in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.